So in the way that we have been presenting the formal practice, you could say, it's quite, I think, obvious that the central factor, the, the essence, is really awareness or mindfulness. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, really the radical nature of trusting, really trusting awareness, mindfulness, basically shifting our refuge from our normal habits of mind, including in the meditation, to really trust the transformative power of steady awareness. So, you know, we go on about awareness, and it's, you know, it's not a thing. It's not some state we're trying to get to and stay at. It's uh, really an activity, moment to moment, and that's all there is, moment to moment. I love that. Whenever you find yourself trying to create a state of mind and somewhere in the back there's the unspoken belief and then it'll be like that forever. No, impossible. But also, what's great about it is when you find your mind filled with self-judging or you see how much greed is coming up or you say, oh, I'm hopeless, I'll never be concentrated, whatever your, your deal is. It's only this moment. No matter how unbearable it is, it's only this moment. That's amazing. So when we try to think about what the potential of freedom from craving, you don't have to jump to our hot never experiencing it again. Try opening to the possibility of a moment right now of pure awareness, total presence that's free from craving. It's totally in all of our experiences many times a day. We tend to overlook because it's quieter than the uh, obnoxious habits that we tend to put our trust in. So this awareness that's a moment-to-moment activity, it's like it's so nothing, right? We do overlook it. And so often as as several people, I think, have said, the tendency is to, uh, well, we don't assume it, but in the background, have the sense that when we talk about this total non-judging presence, accepting what's arising in the moment, that quality of passivity, of non-doing, that has a little bit of a negative connotation. They go, how, how can this nothing that's completely non-interfering, transform anything. How can we trust that? One thing that I love about the, the Buddha's teaching, the way he talked about really what frees our heart and mind and what liberation is, as Andrea was saying last night, it's not about adopting a new, an old, or any set of beliefs. His, uh, it's very simple and elegant. Yes, dense, endless books, and it can be extremely dense and complicated too. But the way I like to look at it, and maybe just because I'm too simple, but that the essence, the heart of freedom, it begins, the path the Buddha talks about begins and ends with right view. Right view Sometimes we say like wise understanding, but 
right view is right. Joseph was saying the other day, he was giving a talk somewhere and talking about right view. And then somebody asked, as you were talking about wise understanding, and he said, let me just be obnoxious for a minute. I didn't say wise understanding. I said right view. And I love that because I think, for me, it's very literal. Because the Buddha's talking about what's so simple, what's so elegant, what frees in a moment and more and more and more our heart, our minds, from the habits of believing the stories of clinging, of aversion, of me, 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 me. What frees in a moment us from believing that is accurate recognition of things as they are. The freedom of the Buddha isn't about getting to another world. It's about waking up into this one, but actually recognizing what the heck is going on in our mind, in our body, instead of just making it all up because we don't recognize accurately. So right view, the beginning, the end of the path, it's so beautiful. What frees our heart from clinging in a moment? is recognizing accurately the way things are. And when we recognize that, clinging doesn't make any sense. Because it doesn't work. Clinging to what, you know? So, recognizing the self and the world as it is in any moment. How we recognize an experience, how we think about it, how we respond, right? I mean, that's obvious. Very simple. How it how seeing accurately can change that. Very simple example, um, a sound occurring in the hall. The similar sound arises over and over at irregular but steady intervals, and you hate it. (laughs) Then the sound comes, it's unpleasant, you may or may not recognize the unpleasant, but it's a human sound, which always bugs us more than if it was just some random external sound. And so you can, we can be aware there's the sound, there's the annoyance. We can be aware of the annoyance, the annoyance or not. But basically we're really buying into that sound should not be happening. Doesn't that person know better than, you know, whatever it is? Or even if, you, yeah, so say they're coughing or say they're burping or say they're swallowing, which by the way, at some point, everyone starts going crazy with their swallowing. You know, just do it now and get it over with. But don't worry about it. You swallow, we're all swallowing. It's okay. It's just hearing. It's just sound. So, but you see what I mean when there's that sense of, ah, the sound is really bothering messing up my concentration. They shouldn't be doing it. Or even if I can think, they can't help it, but it's messing up my concentration. It's messing up my practice. (laughs) How can I? You know, you know the whole deal. That leads to, that's already action, the action of thinking about it, what to do, should I move, should I write a note, should I leave them one of those meta notes on their cushion, should I write a note to the manager, should I complain to my teacher, should I beat myself up for not being compassionate, should I sit in my room from now on, and then that takes up your whole day. You get a sense that we're really, we're taking refuge, we believe the story about how it's messing up my concentration, as if my concentration 
mattered in the first place, as if that's what it's about, that it's that sound that that person can't help it, on and on and on and on. And that's such a simple example. Multiply that by how many sense experiences do we have in a normal day? Multiply that by everybody in the normal world not even stopping to look at their minds. I mean, it's amazing the world isn't in a worse shape than it is. If it would be possible to get in a worse shape than it is. It's amazing it's not. Okay. Recognizing accurately. And this is the power of simple mindfulness. And it, it, I know it can drive people crazy. They come in with whatever story and go, oh, okay, so are you just noticing hearing? Like, that doesn't help. Are you noticing the irritation? Yes, I'm really aware there's irritation. Yes, we know you're aware. Are you really aware? Aware means not owning, not judging, not hating, not clinging. Just noticing irritation is like this. You know, you think, yeah, thank you very much. I came here for that, and you know, out. But you try it, because ultimately you've tried everything else that's socially acceptable. So you're sitting here, there's 35 more minutes, try the damn mindfulness or, you know, run out screaming. You just bring awareness to hearing. Just hearing. You come, oh, oh, that's a sound. Oh, that thought, they shouldn't be doing that. Ah, it's irritation. It doesn't necessarily change that pattern, but it takes all the heat out of it because you're seeing accurately. Just this series of things. And then what often can happen is through just being with the experience without jumping over it to the story, an even uh, more accurate recognition of something you couldn't see before. So say, for example, if it's about another person, suddenly, oh, that must be you know, really uncomfortable for them to be whatever it is that's going on. Say they have a cold and they're sniffing. You, oh, that must be really uncomfortable. And like compassion just naturally arises, not because it should, because then you'd be a better person. It's just the actual understanding, which isn't accessible when we're lost in the reactivity. It comes by itself. It's not, I should sit here, I should look, I should get to how can I be compassionate, meta, meta, meta. You know, that, sometimes that works, but that's not what I'm talking about. Just being with what is. It's like, oh, okay, it's not a problem. Very simple. But this goes on all the time. This recognizing accurately affects the way we think about something, the stories we tell, the views we have, the actions we take here and in the world. There's a a phrase in Pali, it's a particular, in one of the... um, one of the lists of different kinds of insights with different names. There's one level that's called yata bhuta jnana dasana, which is often translated, and it's a pretty so-called powerful level of insight. It's often translated as knowledge and vision of things as they really are. Jnana dasana, knowledge and vision. Yata bhuta, often translated things as they really are. But as Gil Fronstel pointed out to me, he's quite a Pali scholar, a more accurate um, translation of yata bhuta would be things as they have come to be in this moment. I'm adding in this moment to that. And I think that is so perfect. That yata bhuta, things as they have come to be in this moment, recognizing that it's only for this moment. 
It's nothing we can hold on to now, I know. Just in this moment requires that total open-hearted presence, free from agenda, assumption, liking, disliking, or what does it mean about me? It's that recognition of things as they have come to be in this moment. It gives that sense of the um, complexity of all the causes and conditions that come together to create this moment just as it is, can't be any other way, and the next moment the causes have changed and it's different already. That living, uh, ineffable, unhold, on-toable essence, things as they have come to be in this moment, recognizing that in a moment is the doorway to freedom in that moment. Because there's nothing to hold, and you can't even label things as they have come to be in this moment. What, what, what causes and conditions had to come together for you to be sitting here? And if you start calling all of them up, you'll never come to an end. You know, you can start by your health, you can start by having the financial resources, the family that supported you, the fact that there is a center here, the fact that you have an interest, the fact that we're not at uh, war in this moment, in this place, in this country, the fact that 35 years ago people went to India and came back and someone donated money, donated money to open this place, the fact that you've had enough to eat for most of your life, the fact that the farmers were growing the food, you know it goes on and on and on forever. How do we think we can somehow control and hold on to and how, why on earth do we think, which we do, that it's all about me in this moment. When me sitting here is the momentary, constantly changing result of everything coming together. And I just love that, yata bhuta, jnana dasana, knowledge, recognizing things as they have come to be accurately, just for this moment, is the really elegant doorway the Buddha talks about into freedom. And so, in this particular way of practice, we're emphasizing the awareness, the steadiness of cultivating this mindfulness, this awareness, whether it's precise, whether it's broad, that allows by itself for many, many moments of recognizing yata bhuta. We don't have to figure out in advance You can't. And that's what's so crazy. We try to think, how will we get it so the next moment's clearer? So we can control this moment so we know how it'll be in the next moment or the next sitting or the next day. And anything can happen, you know, in any moment. So our only real um, viable option, if we could trust it, is to just surrender into total presence without resistance, without clinging. I mean, easier said than done, I know. To just being here right now. So that's what we're practicing. Because it is easier said than done. The Buddha um, often would talk about, in the suttas, talk about this is Dhamma, visible, here and now. What Andrea said last Sunday, Hipasiko, you too come and see this Dhamma, visible, here and now. At one point he said, to what extent is this Dhamma visible here and now? 
to the extent that greed, that hatred, which includes the quality of mind, that includes um, aversion, resistance, fear, sadness, all the negative, negativity, and delusion, confusion, visible here and now to the extent that greed, hatred, delusion are not present in the mind-heart, in the citta, in a moment, are not coloring the mind that's noticing what's happening. So I want to talk a little about these three, not so we hate them, <laughs> so we recognize. Because really our, our bhavana practice, the meditation practice, is about, it's a work of the mind, of course, it's to really learn to recognize accurately how the mind is working. It's learn to, to learn to recognize how do we recognize yata, bhuta, and how we can know when we're not. How we can know when our judgment, when our chitta, that moment of consciousness that comes together with whatever mental factors are in that moment of consciousness, that moment of recognition. When that chitta is colored by wanting, colored by uh, aversion, colored by confusion, delusion, and there's not recognition of that, that's when we don't recognize accurately. But in the moment we recognize, for example, here's craving, that's a moment of recognizing accurately again. Craving simply becomes the next object of recognition. So it's to learn to, to get interested in exploring this. He talks about this all the time, the Buddha. So to first just to, to mm, I mean, I know you're all familiar with these, but just to remind us very simply, I'm sure we'll talk a lot more, just about recognizing wanting, clinging, desire, aversion, hatred, fear, confusion, delusion, me, 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 that the recognition is all we need to do. But when we don't recognize, they're really such deeply ingrained habits that arise so naturally and spontaneously in our minds, in our hearts, in response to any sense perception, sense contact. They're so familiar that we often don't recognize because it's just, it's just familiar. We think, yeah, it is right. That person is making a noise, and that noise is messing up my meditation, and that is what the problem is in this sitting. I mean, anyone would agree with that. And so it's uh, really learning to see where the suffering is, because suffering begins, arises in our heart and mind in a moment. It, it's abandoned, it vanishes in our heart and mind in a moment. I love that. I'm just going to get in that moment, because it's, it makes it all workable. You don't have to do it forever. This moment, it's workable. So learning how they obscure these habits. So the Buddha said also that greed, hatred, confusion, or delusion are makers of measurement. Makers of measurement in our heart, in our mind. And you can actually feel that, the kind of constriction, the limitation of our heart, the sense of me and other and distance and separation and neediness. That arises when we're taking refuge, when we're believing in greed, hatred, confusion. So just very simply, just starting to 
when there's wanting in the mind and we don't notice it, or we notice it, but we're believing it, notice how it turns all our attention outwards towards the thing wanted. My brother used to have um, a hunting hound dog, very sweet dog. But these dogs are bred so that their sense of smell is so incredibly sensitive. And this poor dog, he was like he was a slave to his nose, to smelling. I mean, he would come into the house every time. We would have to hide all the wastebaskets, all the garbage cans. Whenever I would go to visit, I would have to zip up my suitcase because anything that had anything to do with food or had any sense of human being on it or animal, like if you had like a dirty shirt, he would smell it. He couldn't keep his nose out. He'd go in the room. He'd go in the suitcase. He'd go through everything, pull out that dirty shirt because it had like, you know, animal smell on it. And, and he would come in the house, and he just couldn't just go lie down. He had to just follow his nose around. I mean, the poor dog would go outside and just have to run around the whole side of the yard smelling everywhere an animal had been, you know? And it just seems to me like a great image for craving. The next thing, the next thing, the next thing is going to do it, is going to do it, is going to do it, is going to do it. And it never ends. And then he just flopped down exhausted and sleep for about 10 hours. I never saw a dog sleep so much. Usually they're up early, you know, but this dog's sleeping late, 9 in the morning. You're like, come on, phone, get up and go for a walk. So I'm joking, but you see how it does it to us. We're looking outward. We're looking outward. We're going to the next thing. And when this thing doesn't do it, craving has this seductive promise. Oh, but the next one will. And in fact, I was talking to someone the other day, even, you can even, by not noticing the craving, think that the craving itself is a kind of pleasure. And so it's really, oh, yeah. The Buddha says in, in one of the places where he's talking about... Um, the second noble truth, as Andrea mentioned, the cause of suffering is, is, is tanha. It translated often as craving closer to thirst. He says, craving accompanied by delight, searching now here and now there. And that's what we do. Oh, yeah, wanting. How great. I mean, what is our problem? But, oh, yeah, that. Then you have a, some daydream comes up, and you say, oh, that would be so nice if I could go do that, and I'll plan it. And then you, you spend about 20 minutes cultivating craving, cultivating wanting, really thinking you're having a nice time. And then you wake up, and here you are, sitting on your pillow. There's 20 more minutes. There's peanut butter and rice cakes for tea. What good did that do you, you know? <laughs> Oh, but it was so nice. It was so pleasant. That's taking refuge in craving. <laughs> we do. Huh? Well, could go into a lot more, but I just want to like touch touch these briefly. Um, dosa aversion. Dosa is the Pali word that covers aversion, fear, resistance, all the all the ones. I like to use dosa personally rather than the specifics. Because it, it gives the breadth of it, but it also helps me not go into the specific stories. I, I really find that helpful if the dosa you're getting caught in is a kind of self-judgment or self-worthlessness. Because you go, oh, self-worthless, judging. Oh, I'm judging again. Can't I stop judging? Oh, that's ju- oh, so aversive. It's hopeless. I'm so aversive. Just a dosa in the mind. It's not all about you. You're not the only person here with dosa arising in the mind. It's the human condition, just as craving comes up, so does aversion. And so in the same way, 
when aversion, when resistance or fear is present in the chitta, in the mind, as a response to an immediate experience happening here and now, and we don't recognize really, we're seeing through it, again, it shrinks our world. Take that unpleasant sound in the hall. Doesn't it, like it's some little nothing when you're not really caught up in it. When you're married to that sound with aversion, doesn't it just like take over the world? It's so loud. The swallowing thing, really, it can happen where you start noticing you're swallowing. Oh my God, everybody in the hall is hearing me swallow. It's humiliating. I'm, I'm really not making this up. This happens to almost everyone. I remember one time years ago I was sitting here. I mean, I'd been living here. I knew this place. Somehow I got into this sensitive space and the radiators used to make this popping sound. And it just got so loud. It got so, I felt like it was machine gun fire going on. It was unbearable. And I was convinced it leads to action. I was convinced there was something really wrong. The maintenance guys, I knew them. They're very different ones from now. I knew them, and I knew they didn't know what to do. Even if something went wrong, they wouldn't know how to fix it. And so I was really running around. Don't you do this. I was running around down in, in, in the uh, boiler room down there, trying to see what was wrong with the furnaces because they were making this unbearable sound that was taking over the world. It was no different from how it had always been, you know, for five years and how it was just my mind. But aversion, it takes over and it limits it. That became, you know, my whole experience, how to fix this sound, you know. Enormous suffering. I'm making silly examples, but you can extrapolate, right? Or the example Thich Nhat Hanh always gives, which I love, which is if you have a, like a rough tooth or a tooth that hurts, can you keep your tongue away from it? <laughs> How much are you trying to feel? Oh, God, yeah, and all the thoughts. What about all your other teeth? Do you notice them? <laughs> they don't hurt. They're fine. No. Before it was rough. Did you notice it? No, but now this tooth has taken over the world. That's what we do. That's what happens when we don't see aversion in the mind. It shrinks the consciousness. It narrows it, and it leads us to actions, not based on yata bhuta, things as they are. Recognizing things as they are doesn't necessarily mean the aversion, the clinging goes away. It means recognizing that's what's happening. Ah, this is aversion. Being able to hear the sound of the radiator. Oh, it sounds really, that's really unpleasant. I don't like it. Here's this thought. That's all happening. Fine. Awareness can be with all of that. That's the radical nature of awareness. We're not saying it has to change everything. We're saying it's able to include to be totally present with anything. Just letting it be like it is, but with total presence. And not with total presence doesn't mean if I do this for a minute, then it'll get better. It just means yata bhuta, things that they have come to be in this moment, is the place, the only place, that suffering arises and that freedom is recognizable. It's the only place. As long as we're resisting or limiting or looking to some other moment, then that's the one thing we can't recognize, is how things actually have come to be now. Where's the suffering? Where's the freedom? It's only right here, right now. And the third delusion, confusion, which is, of course, often harder to recognize because, duh, that's that's its nature. 
But the, the obvious aspect of delusion confusion is when you just don't have a clue what's going on. You know, and that, okay, that's great. At least we wake up from that daydream of 20 minutes of going, oh, yeah, right, I wasn't aware at all. And now I am appreciating that moment of awareness. But the underneath, the kind of like the more, I don't want to say it's subtle, it's not really subtle, the most pervasive, I would say, refuge, entrancement of this area of delusion is the sense of it being all about me. The sense of ownership, the sense of either this is me, this is mine, what does it mean about me? This sense of measurement. Sony Rinpoche gave a great example. I said this, said in Tibet when they were like setting out the footprint, the foundation to build a house, they just start from a point in the middle and they have like a, a rope, you know, to, to make the to make the uh, diameter. So they just stretch the rope, you know, in all directions from that center point. And he said, I don't know if this makes sense, but I like it. He said, the sense of me is like that. Everything begins from that, not an idea, but from that felt sense of me now. And then everything's kind of like related back to that or out from that or compared to that. Not everything, but many things. So for example, James or someone gave the simple example of you drop a fork in the dining room and it makes a clatter. doesn't immediately, what does that say about me? Everybody's going to be looking at me. You don't just go hearing fork, whatever, (gasps) me. Or Joseph has a great story, which I'm sure he wouldn't mind my telling since he tells it, where he was in line, he was on retreat in line uh, for a meal, like the second person in line. And, the fir- and a lot of people lined up. And the first person you know, had one of those big pots and lifted the lid off the pot and dropped it and just made a heck of a racket all over the floor. You can imagine, right, with everyone just standing there bored waiting for the meal. I know you are really aware doing standing meditation, but maybe there's a little expectation. And he said the first thought, this clanging noise, goes, and Joseph says his first thought was, it wasn't me. <laughs> It's our most pervasive, the most familiar, the most, well, we don't, it's unquestioned because, well, obviously, it's about me. I mean, if we follow it through thinking-wise, we wouldn't really say that, but we don't. So it feels so real that we may not recognize that it's there, and we see everything through it. Back to, you're sitting there, there's that noise is wrecking my concentration. Do you see how that relationship to me, my concentration, how I feel about the noise, the concentration, some idea I have of how it should be compared to the past, compared to the future, but it's basically all about me getting something I want. All the time. Not all the time. Much of the time. This sense of me-ness can be noticed just like anything else. It's not something to hate. It's something to recognize, to get interested in to notice how when that's in the chitta, in the moment of recognition, and we don't recognize it, there'll be maybe not huge recognizable suffering, but some little sense of it's a little bit off. Sometimes it's big, noticeable suffering, but sometimes it's just just a little bit off because it's a maker of limitation, a maker of separation. And so our practice here very important 
to recognize these are habits of all of our hearts and minds that we've practiced a lot. It's not personal. In the sense of meanness, it's not personal. It's just a habit of mind in response to all the six sense door contacts happening over and over, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, sensations in the body, moods, emotions. We spend, like uh, Tejaniya was saying, you say it's so obvious, you know, you spend all day long, on or off retreat, it doesn't matter, it's the same mind, these six sense experiences are happening every second, right? There's a seeing, a hearing, a smelling, a tasting, a thought, a mood, an emotion, over and over and over and over. And when we're not, when there's not quite awareness, you know, when we're just going through our daily life, the habit that is so familiar that we take such refuge in is, well, I like this, I don't like that. We may not even say that, but it's pleasant or unpleasant. So, oh yeah, this is good, this isn't good, oh, that's not worth paying attention to. This is good, this isn't, that's not worth paying attention to. Over and over and over and over. And then from that we think, we make up our stories, and we act. So it's... Um, incredibly familiar, feels so normal that sometimes, say, for example, when it's not present, we think, but this is weird. What's wrong? When you're not, when, like uh, Andrea's story last night about where's the anger? Where's the anger? This is unfamiliar. This is too weird. She didn't say that. She was happy there was no anger. It sounded like. But (laughs) we go, oh, where's the self-judgment? There must be something wrong. Where's that sense of me? Oh my God, how can I function without that sense of me? Came back pretty quick, didn't it? God forbid. It should not be there for very long. So all day long, but it's not personal. It's just nature. And that's really important to remember, to hold in your heart and your memory, because we want to explore when these are present, when we see aversion coming up a lot and going away a lot. When we see wanting, desire coming up, If we're interested in seeing how it's working, oh, that's desire. feels like this. Notice the thoughts. Notice how it narrows the mind. Get interested in all of that. You know, that's the scientific experiment. That's how has it come to be in this moment. Desire is just another condition that's arising yata bhuta as it's come to be in this moment. We need to be afraid of it. We can explore it. We can bring full attention to wanting, to aversion to self-judgment, to that just that sense of me. None of it's personal. It's not that we want to bring aversion to these habits. That's just doing the same thing. And isn't that what we do? Oh, yeah, these are bad. So it's really about purifying the mind. So then the next time you go out of here and go, oh, my God, purifying the mind, all I see is greed and aversion. And since I've come here, I only see more. It's hopeless. It's hopeless. So I'm going to do some really strong concentration practice so I can get rid of this greed and aversion. That's the same habit, right? I trust you recognize that that's the same habit of mind. That's how we know how to act. That's why the working with effort is so delicate, so tricky, because when we can put an enormous effort to achieve some state, to get concentrated, to be mindful every moment, to walk slow, to do whatever. And if that effort is being fed moment to moment by, by gum, I'm going to get rid of this gum. It's the same old thing. 
practicing for fulfillment of me. Practicing to get rid of the unpleasant and get it more pleasant. That's what we've learned as the way to peace. But it isn't the way to peace. But it's so deep in there. The way to peace is that yata bhuta, jnana dasana, recognizing accurately things that they have come to be in this moment with total presence and interest, and not even wanting wisdom out of it. Just that willingness, that that radical trust in moment-to-moment awareness, no matter what's arising, because awareness doesn't care. Awareness isn't stained or damaged or tired out or exhausted. Oh, there's so much difficult stuff coming up, so the awareness is going to get too frayed at the edges. I need to give it a break. We might get frayed at the edges. That's true. It may be that the energy of awareness isn't strong enough and we're getting lost in the fear of the aversion. Sure, that can happen because that's our habit. And when we recognize that, that's when we talk about using skillful means to back out a little bit. If you're forcing the sitting, go and do some walking. Go outside and open up the senses. But it's not the awareness that is having a problem. It's that the, these habits of mind, of wanting, of aversion, of it's all about me, have just gotten really strong again. And that's nature. That's natural. That's going to happen. And what we really keep on learning to trust is that at some point, at any point, the awareness comes back again. It doesn't matter. If you're sitting, if you're walking, if you're going to the toilet, if you're taking a walk outside, at any moment, just that willingness to radically trust awareness. Okay, I can't be aware now. I'm so distraught. I'm so distressed. I'm walking up and down. I'll go walk in the woods. I'll do whatever. You're doing that. There's a there's a smidgen of awareness still there, you know, moment to moment. You're not just hanging it up, getting in your car, and going home. There's a smidgen of awareness, and that's enough. All of a sudden, you feel your feet. Oh, okay, that's what's happening. All of a sudden, you realize, I'm completely lost in this story. But that's awareness. Completely lost in this story, and I recognize I'm completely lost in this story. That's awareness. Anything awareness can notice. And what we're doing here, really, I mean, what I, what I hope, what I'm talking about anyway, is learning to shift where we go for refuge. Learning to shift what we trust consciously. And it's radical. It's really hard. And, and it's, for me, too often, to trust awareness. Sometimes it's not so hard for me now when it's something really difficult, because it's like I know there's no other way out. The more I think about it and worry and try to fix it, the worse it gets. But if I'm really in grief or really upset, okay, just be with it. Just totally be with it. I know that's fine. Where it's harder for me now to trust awareness is when it's just like, oh, la, la, thinking about this. I'm walking up and down. I'm thinking, oh, it's a lot lot of things. No, that can't be awareness. Awareness means it's sharp. It's clear. It's quiet. It's connected. There's awareness can't be awareness with not a lot of energy. There can't be awareness if the mind is cloudy. How could there possibly be awareness if you're sleepy? There could only be awareness if I'm really focused and concentrated. Awareness is so much more pliable, available, all-inclusive than that. 
So if you ever find your mind in any way saying awareness can't be here, because as soon as you have that thought, there's awareness. It doesn't have to change what's happening. And that's the thing. That's the radical trust. It brings us more into what's happening. We may not like to be more into what's happening, so then we jump back off on the aversion train. But really, the shift of refuges, it gets to be more and more and more reliable. Fulfilling is not exactly the right word, but it's the closest word I can come to. Like I said, when I'm in a lot of uh, grief or sadness or sorrow, and the mind's doing it's like, oh, just totally feel it. Sorrow's like this. Thoughts are like this. These are the situations in the world, not going to change. It's totally okay. It's still sad, and the situation's still what it is, and it can't be changed, and when my body's doing what it's doing, awareness doesn't necessarily change what's happening, but it lets us be fully present with what's happening, and the suffering is gone. The unpleasantness might not be gone, but the suffering of the mind that's in contention with reality is gone. And that's a piece that's very different from pleasant experience. It can be pleasant. You can be fully present just as much with joy as with sorrow. But it's not dependent on pleasant or unpleasant or liking or disliking. And it certainly doesn't have to mean anything about me. So what we're doing here is practicing moment after moment after moment, just learning to recognize this simple mindfulness the simple awareness, to recognize it, learn to trust it, learn to surrender into it. The kalesas, the kalesas is the Pali word for these so-called greed, hatred, confusion, these obstructions of, of clear seeing of heart and mind. The kalesas are a lot louder than awareness. We're more used to them, but they also like call for attention. They're clanging and banging and carrying on and Awareness is just kind of, oh yeah, clanging and banging and carrying on. That's fine. You think, you're probably thinking, that, so what? You know, what is that? But it's the shift from all the energy and attention that goes into the object, that goes into trying to fix everything. And even our mood can be the object. The interest, the attention, the identification is not the right word, but it feels like that, is into just being the awareness. And whatever's going on, After a while, the awareness just gets so much more interesting in that moment than what's happening. And this isn't just a meditation and on retreat thing. This is really in our life. Ajahn Sumedho used to like to say, uh, awareness is the point that includes. Point because it's just right now, just right here, an arising experience right now, not a thing. But it includes everything right now. Without... Um, preference without being stained or harmed or damaged in any way. So it's really quite radical. It's really quite radical learning to trust this. How can the steadiness of awareness, how can it be so transformative? How can it lead to wisdom? It does, as I said, it seems so kind of nebulous, and I'm saying, okay, the calaces are clanging and banging, and you just be aware, clanging and banging. It's like, okay, so what good does that do? 
But I think Andrea's story last night about the anger is a really great and very accessible example. So when she talked about you know, just the, the first anger and, and the thought, okay, maybe I can just pay attention to the anger rather than going with it. And so that was a kind of awareness that had no, um, not a lot of conceptual overlay. She didn't have a lot of experience, so she couldn't, she wasn't like trying to make the awareness be a certain way. She didn't have some idea what's going to happen if I pay attention. She's just like, I give up. There's nothing else to do. So let's just be with the anger, right? That quality of simplicity, of, of innocence, you could say, beginner's mind, just to be, to even begin to see that anger, dosa, that's taking over, same for greed, same for me, 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 is a quality arising in the mind at the moment. It isn't everything. There's awareness can notice that too. So that makes it simply another arising mental experience, another thing that can be recognized. And that's very different from this sense of this is who I am. And so just the noticing, just the noticing the anger as she said, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's different. And then she you know, didn't even know how it happened, but suddenly she could go back to work on the computer. The, the energy going into the awareness, often the energy comes out of the kalesa at that moment. Not always. If you do it wanting that to happen, duh, it doesn't work. Like we say, it knows, but really it's because it's not mindfulness. It's not pure awareness. It's, the chit is not pure, and the awareness is colored with wanting. I'll be aware so that, oh, that's wanting. It isn't bad. We just want to turn around and recognize what's actually happening. That's all. What's actually happening. And that steadiness of noticing, that steadiness of noticing, this is another thing I love. Wisdom arises by itself from the clear seeing that's possible through the noticing. We don't have to create the wisdom. So again, that example she gave with cutting the apple and just seeing so deeply the thought arising and about to go off into the anger. And the wisdom, the wisdom is another factor in the mind, rose and really made the decision, no, I don't have to go there. And the aversion just was abandoned in that moment. There was wisdom. You really get it from that example. It was not an act of will. It's not a sense of willpower. I need to look. I need the wisdom that understands why I shouldn't be averse, and then aversion will stop. How many of us have tried that a million times? I get it. Greed causes me suffering. I really see it, so I'm going to stop having greed arise as of now. (laughs) It doesn't work because that's willpower. It's more wanting. But moment-to-moment seeing, there will be moments when you think, oh, look at that food, there should be greed, it's the, and it doesn't come. It doesn't come. Oh, the wisdom saying, okay, that's okay, you'll get the banana or you won't. Either way, tomorrow, it won't matter. You know, it's gone. So learning to trust that through the steadiness of the awareness, the wisdom, the clear seeing, when we recognize accurately, yata bhuta, the greed, the aversion, that it's all about me, just kind of can poof away. It'll come back again in another moment, but that's why it's okay that it's all moments. But if I'm trying to make it happen to meet some 
um, insight that I've read about in all the Buddha's teachings, that can inform us to, to pay attention. But if we're trying to make this moment match some idea, you get it? That's not the total surrender. How is this moment? What is happening right now? That radical surrender into awareness. Very, very powerful. So it's really that the the purification of these habits of mind, the purification of the heart, the mind, so that greed, hatred, and delusion, they do begin to arise less. All the different kinds of practices and all the the aspects of the path the Buddha talked about, I think, all have in common that in one way or another, they're working at helping us recognize the suffering, greed, hatred, delusion to begin with, when it's present in our heart and mind, the suffering aspect of it, and moving to shift those habits. So generosity, non-harming behavior, sila, um, really focus samatha practice, where we just get really, really, really focused on one thing till the mind gets completely absorbed in that. Um, That is a a kind of a purification in those moments where the mind is so focused that there's no space for greed, hatred, confusion to arise. That's why really deep kind of samatha practice is so pleasant. You actually experience, oh, the mind. You see how nice it is when the heart and mind isn't colored by greed by aversion, by clinging. That's not only available in samatha practice. And that's not what we're doing here. There's millions of kinds of practices. The vipassana practice, which is using enough steadiness of mind to notice the changing sense experiences over and over and over and over, including the mind. That's what we're cultivating in in the way that we're teaching here. Many different forms of that. But that's also, as I've been saying, through the steadiness of awareness, recognizing these habits of mind, without aversion, without hating them, without identification, trusting the awareness over and over. And it's in the way that we actually pay attention in this practice. It's the way we meet the moment that the purification is happening. So as I've been saying, the the moment of awareness in that moment, say, greed's arising. Oh, wow, that's greed, really greedy right now. Our habit of, well, that's greed, and what can I do to stop it, and I shouldn't be greedy, and let me think about renunciation, or maybe if I do some metta, nah, 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 nah. and maybe you can like push it away. But that's not what we're meaning by purifying the mind. That's still a lot of willpower. You notice greed, awareness, awareness that isn't colored. Oh, greed is like this. Greed is like this. Whether the greed goes away or not, that moment of awareness, the energy has shifted. That moment of awareness is not greedy. That moment of awareness is not aversive. And it's also not about me. Oh, greed is like this. So the cultivation of moment after moment after moment of this simple, pure awareness is the purification of our heart and mind. It is the practice. So not so much focusing on the object, but getting interested in the quality of the heart, the mind that's paying attention itself. And getting interested in that is always available. Sort of like a, like a Tai Chi move. Here it's like Ajahn Sumedho has a, a line that I use all the time because it's been so helpful. So say we're lost in anger, you're lost in self-judging. 
And sometimes we think we're being mindful and well, self-judging, self-judging, this and this started it and this started it, but there's a kind of a pushing. There's still judging the self-judging. The Tai Chi move, the movement into awareness, the way the Samedo languages it helps me a lot. We're just, oh, self-judging is like this. Deep despair, your heart's bleeding. Oh, heart bleeding is like this. Just that little shift. It's not to change the experience, but it's to change the interest into the awareness. It's subtle, but it's really powerful. And over the steadiness of that cultivating and trusting that, the transformation is profound. Not the transformation of our outer life. That's what I was a guy who was saying that Tibetans say is this, this urge to correct is samsara. It's not correcting. Can it be so radical, our trust and awareness, that we give up our willful trying to correct, but trust that through the presence, that open-hearted presence with whatever's arising, awareness is, can be with anything. Upandita, who's a very kind of fierce teacher, but he said that to me once when something difficult was, I can't remember what was going on. I said, you don't need to be afraid. You know, awareness can be with anything. It really can. At some moments it can, but then again, it can. And so just that subtle Tai Chi, oh, this is unbearable. This pain, this pain is like this. Not to correct but to trust that through the steady awareness, when we recognize accurately, wisdom arises, and we can respond in a much more appropriate way. It's not about not responding in life, as has been said, but it's about not responding when you're trying to fix it, fix it, fix it, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, it's not really the place that's most useful for our attention to be. I just want to give one. <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind of you. And it may seem like, I don't know if it does, but we're very privilege to be able to sit here and look at these relatively subtle movements of our mind and heart over and over and over, all day and night, not need all day and night, (laughs) 24-7. Well, you can sleep, but other than that, it doesn't have to be a lot of effort, but it's that interest, let interest do the work. And it may often seem like it doesn't have much relevance in our life. But learning to really see how our minds work, to understand, to recognize when we're coming from habit in our responses, and that we don't have to be afraid of seeing that, but in the seeing of that, with awareness, is what makes the change. I mean, this is how the world works. This is how all our minds are working. It it may seem like really small, insignificant things here, but it's what we take into our life. I've used this example a couple a few times the last couple of years. But uh, last summer? Yeah, last summer, I was in, in Germany for several weeks. 
And at one point I visited Dachau, which I'd managed never to go to before. You know, the, it's a museum now. It was a, uh, one of the concentration camps. And, um, I mean, it is what it is, but it had a very interesting effect on me in terms of, uh, I don't know, deepening my faith, deepening my trust in just what we're doing here, in the absolute essential necessity of it for my own life and and for the world. Because the sense I got from the way the museum was set up, which I thought was really well done, I mean, of, of course it's horrific. And I don't, and it's only not just Dachau, but, you know, pick so many places in the world even now that people, one group of people is being so unbelievably horrific to another group of people. Our individual smaller groups, you know, there's so much hatred and fear and discrimination and economic um, bullying and racial and gender discrimination. I mean, just it's endless and it's in many places beyond... So much violence. So I'm not saying this is just about Dachau. But the way it was set up would give different uh, big posters with examples of different aspects of the whole thing, the people who were there as prisoners, the people who were there as guards, the people who worked there, the people in the village, how people got there, how it, you know, just everybody. And they'd have like a broad story like uh, doctors doing experiments. But then they'd also have... Uh, pictures, photos of an individual for each, maybe a doctor, maybe a person who was a, an inmate, maybe someone who ran the trains, maybe someone who was a guard, someone who was from the Roma community who got interred, someone who was gay who got interred, some, you know, Jewish, but there'd be the broadness, but the individuality, a photo, a name, and a little bit of a story. And so that made it both vast, but also personal. And what was so clear to me, I mean, this is obvious, it's not rocket science, is it's not like a a few weird, horrible people. It's like mostly relatively normal people caught up in something. And each person, I feel you make, you're, you're confronted with something you don't know, you've never been in before. You have no idea in 1932 or something what's going to be going on in 1941. So you're confronted in, in whichever place you are with little decisions that we have to make. And if we don't understand how our heart and mind work, if we don't understand when we're seeing inaccurately, then you know we'll make a decision. We might think, I would never do something like that. I would never be part of you know, kind of mass hatred of another group. I would never consciously do something to harm another or to take, to take food when there's not enough food to go around, to take for my family and not for them. We can say all these nice things, just like you can say, from now on, I'm giving up craving, you know, but it doesn't work. So it's like, we have to understand. So it's for all of us, we make a decision based as best we can, but it might be from fear, from protecting our family, or just kind of a knee-jerk reaction of hostility without realizing it, because it's so familiar. And then that leads to another, 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 right, all over the world. It's the same mind that, you know, gets us here rushing to the head of the line because there might not be enough bananas for breakfast. You elbow the person, I know you don't do this, but, you know, <laughs> elbow the person out of the way. Okay, it's not a big, but so here, it's not that we think, I will never do that, but learn with love, with kindness, with interest to understand 
when these are arising in our mind, how they function, how they color our experience, how we can be free even within them. It's not dissociated from life, from what's going on in the world. I mean, I really have felt, I felt before anyway, obviously, I spend my life doing this, but I feel more, I don't know, more committed than ever that this is where we can start. This is a whole life practice. It takes enormous courage and commitment and faith, as Andrea was talking about, and it's, it's, it's radical beyond anything our mind can understand in terms of transforming not the externals, but how we recognize ourselves in the world and others, how we meet ourselves in the world and others. And that transformation is going to affect everyone we come in contact with, because we're not separate. Yata bhuta, yana dasana, how things have come to be in this moment. Each moment affects the next moment. Each moment of trusting and awareness makes it a little more easy for the next moment. Each moment of clear seeing, of clear recognition, has an effect. It's one of the conditions leading into the next moment. I just want to end with um, something Deepama said. Deepama was this really amazing little tiny um, Indian woman who was quite uh, realized. And she said one time, there's so much sameness, sameness in ordinary life. We are always experiencing everything through the same set of lenses. But once greed, hatred, and delusion are not present, you see everything fresh and new all the time. Every moment is new. Life was dull before. Now every day, every moment is full of taste and zest. Just a little carrot. (laughs) But then put it down. And recognize that this moment is fresh and new and full of taste and zest. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.